Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as pastor, professor, chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping others to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's topic is male and female roles in family and the church. And so in this episode, we're going to be discussing the differences between men and women in the family and the church life, and then explaining why that's such a beautiful thing. So Aaron, as we kick things off today, can you just maybe open us up with why is are we even talking about this issue? I think most people are seeing a radical shift in culture whereby the definitions of sex are breaking down and people have this notion they can sort of pick their gender. It's pretty common nowadays for people to put their pronouns on their emails, their business cards, as if it isn't obvious from looking at someone. Uh, we also have a lot of confusion in churches. I think churches in part have contributed to some of the confusion in culture because we're a little bit scared at times to talk about the clear differences between men and women in the home and in the church. So I, I think this is really a, an authority of scripture issue. The scriptures has a lot to say about men and women, even in the opening chapters of the scripture. So we need to help to continue to bring clarity to people's thinking in this regard, because the world is frankly confusing people. I also think, Chris, it's an emotional issue due to um, the violation of roles, men not taking their responsibilities seriously or being abusive or shirking their roles or women seeking to usurp the, the order that God has placed upon them. There's a lot of emotional turmoil in marriages and churches that erupt when men don't get maleness right and women don't get femaleness right. And so there's a, an emotional uh implication to this that flows over into relationship. So if, if a person doesn't understand who they are and how they're created and what the boundaries are to their relationships, their walk with Christ and their interaction with a member of the opposite sex, whether it's in marriage or in the church, it just can bring a lot of relational confusion. As I've already alluded to, it's also a social issue, right? So we've sort of reached a tipping point in culture where society has gone from rejecting roles, this is really important, rejecting roles that are assigned to men and roles that are assigned to women to simply rejecting gender, period. So when, you know, historically churches were complementarian, they, they understood that there was a difference between men and women and everyone understood that. When you were a little boy, they'd say, you know, do you want to grow up to be a firefighter, a police officer, a pastor, whatever it might be. And then they would kind of run down the roles that traditionally women have done. And one of those, which is biological, is to be a mom, potentially a bride. This has all been cast to the wayside and it's caused uh, a lot of confusion. Even in our own churches, we're, we're starting to counsel people who have a lot of confusion in their own mind, especially younger people, about what it means to be a man or a woman. And then, of course, we, we want to discuss these issues because when we bring clarity to maleness and femaleness in marriage or in the church, we're actually helping to bless the future couples that are going to be married in our church. Future marriages are blessed as couples go into those marriages understanding what their roles are and feeling comfortable with that and not feeling they have to apologize for it or 
that it's ambiguous in their mind as to what it means to be a husband or wife. And then in the same place in the church, it's really good for men to understand the roles God has assigned to them and for women to understand the roles God has assigned to them. And so we want to kind of help to keep people accountable to their quote unquote job description, the unique characteristics of and responsibilities of a husband, a wife, a pastor slash elder, church people, pastor's wife, and so forth. And most importantly, I would say, if you read Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 takes the institution of marriage and it frames it up as a presentation and dramatic representation of the gospel. So when a man properly functions in marriage, he represents Christ's relationship to the church. And when a bride functions properly in marriage, she represents the church's relationship to Christ. The devil knows that if you can destroy creational marriage, then you also make it more difficult for people to really understand and comprehend the nature of Christ's relationship to the church, which has huge implications for the whole gospel story, the whole gospel narrative. So this is a gospel battle. Now, just a quick definition alert. Gender is not a biblical word. Sex is. Male and female is. So the world often would say things like, well, sex is biological, but gender is your identity. Well, we're not going to allow that differentiation to be made. Your sex is part of your identity. You're born male or female. The opening chapters of the Bible are very clear on that. It's undeniable. People know it. I mean, you can say you you don't believe that all you want, but you know that's true. Mm -hmm. There are males and there are females. And when in Genesis 2, when God made them male and female, he immediately defines their roles. This is before sin entered into the world, before there was any variety of cultures, variety of languages, variety of perspectives. Right at the beginning, God lays it down. He created us male and female. We're both made in the image and likeness of God, but we have different roles to play in this world. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can explain then too the the way that maybe to define the different ways that people tend to perceive of male and female roles to help clear that up. Sure. So there's radical egalitarianism, which would say men and women are the same essentially in either their function, their functionality. So there's, there's would be radical egalitarianism, which would say that, and this is both within the church and obviously without the church. So there's a kind of a, quote unquote, Christian version of egalitarianism. And there's a social version of egalitarianism, which is men can do what women can do. Women can do what men can do. We're all the same. We're no, we're no different, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Then there's hierarchicalism, which would say that men are over and above women. And there's actually some cultures of the world where women are over and above men, but it's very rare. Mm. So hierarchicalism generally would be there's a, there's a hierarchy, period. Men are superior than women in every single way. That would be the notion. Complementarianism would say that um, we're different, and but we complement one another. We sort of meet each other's needs, like two pieces of a puzzle coming together. Each brings something to the other that makes them more complete, not 
absolutely complete because in a broken world and in a world full of evil, there's never going to be absolute completeness and absolute satisfaction, absolute unity in any Christian marriage. Complementarianism is expressed in the church by reserving typically the office of pastor elder for qualified men, not just for any men, but for qualified men who qualify according to the pastoral epistles. And really, I, I'm, I would argue that uh, complementarianism is the best word to describe right now. It's the best word to describe the biblical paradigm of how men and women interact. So in, in marriage, there is hierarchy, but there's also equality. In the church, there's hierarchy, but there's also equality. So let me just explain that. When we think of men and women and who they are and what their identity is, it's really important that we understand the difference between ontological equality and functional inequality. So what I mean by that is in terms of our capacity to bear out the image of God, in terms of our value, our innate value in the mind of God, in terms of our worth, in terms of our capabilities, uh, I'm not talking about biological capabilities, but capabilities to think and communicate, we are equal. And this is really, really important. In Galatians, Paul taught that we are one in Christ, whether male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, we're one in Christ. Now that doesn't mean there's no such thing as Jews and Gentiles. There's no such thing as free people and slaves, nor does it mean there's no such thing as men and women. But ontologically, in terms of our essence, our being, we are equal. So a man should never, ever, ever look down with disdain upon a woman and say, well, you're less than me, nor should a woman ever look down on a man with disdain and say, well, you're less than me, I'm better than you. We are equal in terms of our essence, in terms of our value, in terms of our worth, in terms of our humanity. And we want to make sure that's crystal clear that, that no one listening to this podcast would, would in any way, shape or form go away from it thinking that our view is that women are peons, are insignificant, are not valuable. Every man and every woman is equally valuable in the mind and heart of God but we are functionally different. We have different capacities. In Genesis 2, 18, a woman is called, the woman, Eve, is called her husband's helper. It's interesting that we've almost made that into a dirty word in culture. So everyone wants to be the boss, right? When you're a little kid, you're playing with your buddies. I want to be the boss. I want to be the boss. I want to be the, the king of the hill, the king of the castle. I want to be in charge. I want to be the captain of the team. This is all this sinful desire to usurp others. And that leaks into our view of role relationships where as soon as someone hears the word helper, they kind of shrink back. So I had a exchange on the street uh, in another city I was in recently with someone I hadn't seen for several years and it was a female and she's a very thoughtful, intelligent person, but she immediately went on the attack and she says, it's churches like yours that see it, that where women are inferior. You know, you tell women they have to work in the kitchen and work in the nursery and, you know, this kind of stuff and they can't be elders and they can't preach. Well, first of all, she's not even accurate, but I, my, my tactic with her 
instead of just immediately trying to defend us, I said, oh, you think there's a problem working in the kitchen? Is it, is it a beneath you to work in the nursery? And she kind of stepped back and I think caught herself because she was almost suggesting that it's beneath a, a woman to be asked to serve in the nursery. So right there in her mind, preaching is better than serving in the nursery hmm. or may, maybe leading a Bible study for a mixed audience is somehow better than serving in the kitchen. And it's not. It's not because even even among the women of the church, let's say you were in a church that allowed women to preach and become elders. Well, is every single one of them going to be an elder? Like everyone, 100% of them? So even if you had a church entirely composed of women, not not everybody can be the top dog. In fact, there is no real top dog. You You are gifted by Christ in certain areas and in keeping with your maturity, you serve in an area that suits your purposes and suits your skill set. And that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm not, um, you know, in the life of the church, I obviously have a position of influence and um, there's a public aspect to my ministry. But if I stepped onto a, an ice rink, I wouldn't be the captain of the team. If I stepped into a, a band, <laughs> I wouldn't even qualify to play on the thing. So this idea that somehow it's bad to serve in these more out of the way, maybe lesser notice roles is actually, again, a part of the sin nature, this desire to be, you know, up front. So we are functionally different and there's nothing wrong with being help meet. And there's obviously benefits to that too. When you're the husband of your home or the pastor of your church, you may get more applause, but you also get your lights punched out sometimes, metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. And so there's pluses and minuses to serving behind the scenes. There's pluses and minuses to serving uh, in a more public role. And just like in marriage, you know, th there's parts of being the husband that are easier and there's parts of being the wife that are easier and there's parts that are hard. So we're functionally different. Um, we have different biological past capacities. Men don't, birth children. Men can't nurse children. Not that we would necessarily want to, but we just don't have the capacity to do that. Um, we're grateful that our wives have that capacity. Um, so functional difference and ontological equality is where we're at. So there's, there is some hierarchy in there. In marriage, the husband is the head of his home, the spiritual head. In the church, the elders are the spiritual heads, but all of us submit to the ultimate head, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the great pastor of the church, Jesus Christ. Chris, one of the things that's interesting is that, um, you know, there, there are, there are many areas of society outside the church that we understand that there's functional inequality, that you're not, just because you're in a relationship, just because you're in a society, just because you're um, interacting with others doesn't mean that the person that's in charge is somehow better than you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you mentioned that in, well, even saying if you have a church full of women, somebody's still the leader. Of course. So, yeah. And we see that elsewhere in society as well. So maybe actually, could you explain some of those or other areas that we see roles and accept the difference of roles? 
Yeah, well, the, the primary one, which no believing Christian should ever have a problem with, is the, the Trinity. Who? The, so the Trinity properly explained, there is one God who eternally exists in one essence. So there's not two gods, not three gods, not four gods. It wasn't like there was the Father, and then he decided to have a son, and then they had a Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons within one eternal essence, within one they, they make up the God that we worship. We are monotheists, but we're Trinitarian monotheists. And there's nothing within creation that can really compare to the triunity of God. Some people have tried to come up with various illustrations, all oh, the three-leaf clover, uh, cherry pie, you get the filling, the cherries, the crust, that's sort of like three in one. Uh, water can be in a liquid form, uh, can be in the form of you know ice or vapor, that's kind of like the Trinity. An, an orange has a peel to it, the fruit, the seeds. No, none of I never use analogies from creation to try to describe the Trinity because those are all three parts or three elements, three organic mm -hmm. um, yeah, or modes, right? Modes. Yep. I was going to say matter, but organic matters mm -hmm. would sound a little weird, but uh, you get my point. These, yep. these are... Th kind of three in one, but they're not the same kind of three in one as God is. God is three distinct eternal persons in one holy unified essence. The Father's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, and so forth, but they are one God. Mm -hmm. And within the triunity of God, there is ontological equality. They're all equally God. They're all equally worthy of our worship. They're all absolutely authoritative, but there's functional differentiation between them. So the son submits himself, for example, to the will of the father. So if you look at Philippians chapter two, where he condescends, he takes on flesh and he is sent by, commissioned by, affirmed by, and obedient to the father. So we have... The, the fatherly authority over the eternal son, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is lesser God. So within the Trinity, the original eternal being that governs the universe and who has always existed, that notion of using our language, ontological equality and functional differentiation is there. Mm -hmm. Within social order, so now we just bring it down to brass tacks here. In terms of the social order, the government isn't doesn't have God's authority. It has limited authority, but it still has God-given authority mm -hmm. over the citizens that God has assigned the government to govern. So this is why we are called to submit to the authorities. When they function within their job description, we submit to their authorities, their authority. In a parent-child relationship, even though this is probably falling away, nobody with the right mind would, would argue that a 30-year-old mother doesn't have authority to discipline and instruct her six-year-old son. She's a woman, he's a boy, but it's not like, well, I'm a boy, so you can't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. No, you're going to get spanked, you're going to get disciplined, you're going to get told to smarten up by your mom. And you you need to honor your father and mother that your days might be long in the land. Mm -hmm. So no, no one would 
in a right mind would argue that. But somehow when it comes to marriage, all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, let's not talk about differences. Let's not talk about inequality. You know, oh man. Well, it's in the Trinity. We see that basic principle. It's in social order. It's in parent-child relationships. Therefore, you cannot be consistent and argue that roles are intrinsically sinful, wrong, or merely the result of a fallen order. So when you come to the scriptures and it talks about women not being permitted to teach, people are like, oh, does that mean you think women are less? Well, first of all, I do think women can teach. We'll describe that in a moment. But so we need to be accurate when we talk about these mm -hmm. things. But no, it has nothing to do with your intellect. It has nothing to do with your value. Like, let's not be so shallow to assume that because there's restrictions on how we function in life and culture and in the church, that that means we're not loved or we're somehow lesser citizens. And this is the this is the lie that this young woman that I met on the street was basically buying into. She's mm -hmm. a believer, at least she, she was when I knew her years ago. I'm not exactly sure where she stands and everything. But this this anger that if you know you're you're somehow um uh, not allowed to be alpha dog in every area of life that you're a, a bad person. Um, and so that would be even like thinking in terms of the, the um, roles within the church, that doesn't necessarily mean the person with the most theological knowledge has to be the pastor, right? There could be somebody that's the pastor that is qualified biblically and there's somebody with their doctorate in Greek that is, submissive yeah. to the pastor so it could be and we see this in role relationships and husbands wives doesn't mean that the husband is always more intelligent academically than the female than the wife yeah well right? let's take pastoral leadership so pastoral leadership is not just to be boiled down to your preaching skills unfortunately we've kind of done that by calling pastors preachers i don't i don't like to use that kind of language because i think there's a lot of different people in the church that can potentially preach but maybe there's other areas of their, their life where they're inadequate in or not gifted in where they, they don't act, actually qualify to serve as a pastor or an elder in a church. But they could be competent teachers or competent evangelists. And there's a place for men and women to preach and teach in the church in, in the um, you know, proper um, – you know, given, the, given the proper boundaries are, are, are put into place. Mm-hmm. When I've um, read Genesis, I, I love Genesis because it's so foundational. In fact, I've been reading it again just in my devotional time. And in uh, in the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 2, it, I brought this along. It says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I always kind of laugh at that because it's like, at last, he's <laughs> he's been waiting for like a few hours. It's still the sixth day. <laughs> but at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Trans, some people jokingly say it means, whoa, man. You know, he's pretty impressed with her. Because she was taken at a man, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were, were not ashamed. So the last little statement there, they were both naked and not ashamed. In other words, it was a perfect marriage, perfect relationship. Even though in the language prior to that, um, it's, it's very clear that 
there is a difference between the two. They're different. Uh, she was taken out of him and they leave and become one household. Uh, she is also called in the book of Genesis, his helper. And she wasn't like, oh, this terrible. I can't believe, you know, you, God, why would you create him to be the leader of the relationship? And I'm his helper. Can't I get the leader title and he take the helper title? There's, there's no shame. There's no problem. There's no difficulty. They, they accepted and understood that they had God given roles and that was fine. But then we have, I want to, I want to take people to um, a couple other verses, which illustrate and teach the radical implications of sin, even on marriage. When mankind, Adam and Eve fell into sin and disobeyed God, it didn't just affect their walk with, with God in the garden. It also affected their relationship with one another. So in Genesis 3.16, as God pronounces judgment upon them, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So there's labor pains and difficulties associated with sin. And I've been in a delivery room five times and I've seen that it hurts. And you feel for your wife. You're like, I'm not, not really sure I can fix this. But it definitely brings much pain that, you know, she would say is hard to describe. That's one of the consequences of sin. Whereas if you watch mammals give birth, we've I've seen sheep give birth, goats give birth, cats give birth, dogs give birth, and cattle give birth. I've been right there even helping in some of those deliveries. And they're not crying out or don't seem to be in pain at all. They're just pushing the calf out or pushing the kittens out or the dogs. We had a litter of uh, puppies at the beginning of January and it's super cool. The mom is, the pups are coming out. She's licking them like crazy to lick off all the birth sacs and snip their umbilical cord and rolling them around in the little box and licking them all clean. And then you look down and oh, there's another one that's already come out and she hasn't, in any way, shape, or form, demonstrated any pain. She's just doing her job by instinct, by God's design. But that's not the way it works for women. Unless you have an epidural, <laughs> you're going to hurt a little bit, a lot, actually. So that's one of the consequences of sin. But this is the part that's often overlooked. It says, your desire, speaking of the woman, shall be contrary to. Now, there's a little word there in the older versions of like the ESV and that because ESV gets updated too. It would say your desire shall be uh, for your husband, but what it actually means is out for. So contrary to is a better translation. Mm -hmm. So your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what that's teaching there, and I'll, I'll prove this a little bit more in a moment, is that because of sin, a woman's desire because of the fall will be to usurp his authority, to be contrary, to be a contrarian, to be out for him. So this is why, because of sin, it's very difficult for many women, maybe difficult for all women on some level, to submit themselves to their husbands. It's, it's based on sin. And when it speaks of him ruling over her, it's not good rulership, it's crushing her. So men have been known to abuse and crush and be insensitive to their wives. And we see this. I've I've experienced that in my own life where I'm, I'm trying to make a point to my wife and I realize I'm being too blunt. Mm -hmm. I'm crushing her spirit. I'm not being respectful of her femininity to my shame. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the, there's a passage. The reason why we know this is what the passage is teaching is there's a one of the things you look for in biblical translation and interpretation is parallel passages with similar grammatical and constructions. And the next chapter over in Genesis four, there's the same same kind of framework that's given when Cain is being warned not to let sin take hold of him. So in in Genesis four, so we just read Genesis three sixteen in Genesis four, beginning with verse five, it says, "So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. He'd been confronted for murdering his brother, and uh, the the Lord." Uh, said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Actually, I think this is just uh, just before. This is when he was angry that God had rejected his sacrifice, to be clear. So why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, listen to this. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule it. Hmm. Same construction there. Yeah. So the idea is, is God teaches Cain how to resist evil. He says, it's it's coming after you. There's temptation, just like Adam and Eve are pursued by the serpent at the tree in the garden. So Cain is told its desire is contrary to you. It's out for you, in other words. It's out to get you, but you must rule it, meaning you must crush it. Different circumstances, but contrary to means it's not, it's, it's not functioning in a way that has your best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. And ruling over means crush it. So that's good advice for Cain. Sin wants to take you down, but you must crush it, in other words. Mm -hmm. And with Adam and Eve, because of sin, because it marred the relationship, notice right away when they were confronted, they were hiding in the garden, they tried to blame each other. Mm -hmm. Well, the woman that you put here, she made me do it, right? So, and then, oh, it's the snake's fault. One of the one of the um, common um, actions that people who are confronted people people who've been confronted with their sin often lash out and try to blame others. Mm-hmm. So it's your fault. It's your fault. People that are living in sin, you know, who are who are drug addicts, who are occultists, um, who are fornicators, who are agnostics or lapsed believers they want to blame someone else for their problem. And that's just the nature of sin. So a woman because of sin becomes the wife specifically becomes contrary to her against her husband and the husband crushes and destroys the wife. And these, these responses and results from sin, we, we are seeking to uh, overcome and restore through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ not only restrains those sinful behaviors, but it also helps to restore the proper biblical order without falling into the trap of egalitarianism or radical hierarchicalism as a means of restoring it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned this in consequence of sin, uh, roles get abused, right? So what does that look like biblically? What does that look like? I guess just understanding that. Well, a lot of, a lot of people base their biblical beliefs less on the Bible and more on their experiences. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear people say, I don't go to church anymore because I had a bad experience. Well, that's not a reason not to go to church because we're called to gather with God's people. Or 
I, I was abused, abandoned. Someone even attempted to, maybe my spouse attempted to murder me or something radical like that. So I'm not, I, I'm not in favor of marriage. I'd advise my kids to avoid it, for example. Mm -hmm. There's some people that have that response. Um, or a woman might say, well, yeah, I, I understand that a man should lead, but I've never seen it done properly. So I'm just not interested. Hmm. Well, this is, this is not the Bible's fault. We don't toss out biblical, toss out biblical ideals because we haven't seen it practiced properly. I think it is a, a bit of an overstatement too, to say, like, if you've never seen it practiced properly, you've been hanging around the wrong people because I've seen a lot of people put this stuff into practice very well. Mm -hmm. But in the Bible, God created one man, one woman, and we start to see the abuse of that very early on in human history. Lamech had two wives. That wasn't God's design. People might say God put up with it, put some boundaries around it for a period of time. But every instant, what's interesting, even among some great biblical figures, they had weaknesses. And every time someone is presented to you that is polygamous, like legitimately married to more than one woman, there's always problems. Mm -hmm. There was there was problems for Abraham. Um, all through the scriptures, whenever you get a person married to two people, then there's problems. There's generally it's jealousy, right? And there, you got the fertile and the infertile sort of pitted against each other, all challenging and questioning God's covenantal promises. Hmm. We have Dinah. Remember Dinah? She was um, uh, raped by the men of Shechem. And so um, a couple of her brothers went in and convinced these guys to all get circumcised. And then when they were recovering from it, they went and killed them all. So a man raping a woman is, is legitimately, Chris, one of the most heinous, dehumanizing and disgusting things any person can do. Mm -hmm. It's not just violence in the moment, but it often has long-term, lifelong uh, consequences. We also meet men at times that have been raped. Generally, it's boys that have been raped by men, so it's in their younger years. But women are, tend to be more vulnerable right into their adult years, and it's it really is shameful that this takes place and took place early on in human civilization. But these are not reasons to say, well, then I'll never trust a man. Men can never lead. They've all disqualified themselves. It's a man that um, rapes a woman, frankly, is, is worthy of the death penalty, according to scripture. In our culture, we don't practice the death penalty, but that's how heinous that is in the mind, mind of God. But there's also men that have molested or raped children and that doesn't mean that we just dispense with fatherhood around the world. There's police officers that have abused citizens, but we don't say, well, then we're completely anti-police. There's um, kings, queens, and governors that have executed their people unjustly. But we don't say, well, then the, the best alternative is anarchy, lack of government. So in every human institution, there's going to be a, people who abuse it. And frankly, the more sinful the world gets, the more abuse we're going to see, abuse of authority and violence, but we still see God's ideal and God's ideal is the fix with God's grace, obviously in a broken world for many of these 
sociological and sinful mm-hmm. uh, expressions that we see people participating in. Mm-hmm. So now also in scripture, we would see exceptions to the general rule. And I think those are often used uh, in support of people that want to do away with gender roles. Uh, so maybe chat about the exceptions a bit. Sure. So we have some people in scripture that are female that come forward in, in significant spiritual roles, teaching roles, influential roles over culture. And when when people are looking for to, to get rid of a complementarian view or to put boundaries on male and females in ministry, they they always look to these exceptions. They don't they don't think too much about the fact that for every exception, there's millions and millions and millions and millions of people in between those exceptions that were and are living according to God's ideals, where the man has primary spiritual leadership mm-hmm. over the community of faith and over his household. So one example of that would be Deborah, you know, a prophetess who was judging Israel at the time of the, the judges. Now, it was a different culture back then, but she she's functioning in sort of a civil role on one hand, and very few people that I know of have a problem with a woman serving in um, governance, who's, you know, a, a person serving in governance who's a female, fine. But she was also serving as a judge, sort of a quasi unofficial ruler over God's community, God's covenantal community. So there's some parallels to the church. Well, you say, oh, well, Deborah was that, so why can't every woman be that? Well, read the judges. Everyone was doing what he thought what he thought was fit in his own eyes. It's a repeating refrain, repeated refrain in judges. And in the judges, every person is not the ideal. That's how they're presented. So you look at Samson. Would you want Samson to be your your pastor? You know, he's he's kind of a harebrained, pardon the pun. He's kind of a harebrained at times. And he he has a bad temper. He's uh, not the most restrained person, you know, that's ever walked the face of the planet. He's messing around with unbelieving women. God still uses him. And judge after judge after judge, it's like, oh man, this this nation really is whacked because this is the guy that is temporarily judging us, is temporarily rescuing us. So you can't look at every leader in the scripture and say, oh, that's God's ideal. That's God's ideal. So what I would say then is when it comes to Deborah, she was obviously a godly woman. And given the circumstances and, and with the lack of men leading, there's exceptions to the rule, but exceptions to the rule don't break the rule. They actually sort of reinforce the rule because it's, it's set within the context of, of a series of exceptions. Not There are exceptional people, but they were also exceptions to the rule because they had fatal flaws leading the people of Israel. We also have um, Hall of the Prophetess in Second Chronicles 34. But again, she steps up and leads because Israel is in an absolutely disastrous state. So a contemporary example of this is let's say you went to a community which had no Christian church, no Christian influence. And into town moves a single Christian woman who loves Christ, who knows her Bible, and there's not a single man in the village that is even a believer. And so she starts to do witnessing and very quickly people come to faith in Christ. Would we appoint the guy that's been saved for a week to be the pastor of the new church? No, we would appoint her 
but it's an exception to the rule. But as soon as men are trained up to lead, she should pass the baton. Hmm. But you wouldn't say, well, you know, we want to keep that rule in place. Women can't teach men, so we're just going to let everybody die in their sins. No, there's, there's exceptions to the rule. Just like when a father abandons his home, the exception to the rules, the mom sort of has to play the role in a certain sense of mom and dad, even though she's not, she can't do, even do it fully, but she's going to try to the best mm -hmm. of her ability. Or you're in a home where the father isn't a Christian and the mom is. Mm -hmm. Well, if mom's sitting down doing Bible study with her kids and dad walks in the room, would she stop teaching and say, well, actually there's a man in the room, so I'm not supposed to teach men, so I'm not going to say anything more. Mm -hmm. No, she would keep teaching with the hope of bringing her husband to Christ. But these are the exceptions to the rule. Now, the question then is, what is the rule? Mm -hmm. And and this is where people have a lot of ambiguity. So what exactly is the role of a husband in his home and men and women in the church? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to that point then, speaking female pastors in the church, you actually just brought that up so we can kind of park there for a moment. Uh, you say in exceptions maybe, but what are some texts that we go to that would make the rule, not the exception? Okay, so I, I'm going to try to be very, very precise, but also brief enough that this doesn't become a whole seminary course. Yeah. So let me just start with going back to a word, which is often Im improperly used. In fact, I, I've heard trained theologians lack nuance in this area. And that's the word preacher or preaching. We'll often hear conservative Christians say, women can't preach. Women can't preach. Women can't be preachers. Women can't preach. They can't be preachers. That's actually wrong. That's wrong. And it's when it comes to wrong, it's not sinfully wrong, but it's bad enough that it contributes to a problem which we've seen in the church. And that is that women are often not given opportunities that God has, in fact, gifted them for. So to be super clear, women can preach. Women can be preachers. But someone who's preaching or someone who's a preacher is not necessarily an elder or a pastor and is not necessarily responsible for the oversight of the church. In Joel 2, women are you know, prophesying in the uh Pentecost and beyond. In Proverbs 31, as King uh, Lemuel uh, gives that famous uh, proverb that contains lessons he learned from his mother, it says at the beginning of Proverbs 31, an oracle that his mother taught him. Now, this was when he was younger, but she was what? Teaching, teaching. him. Teaching. Teaching and preaching. You know, we kind of split hairs, a one's more of a homily. It's the same thing. Okay. You're communicating God's word. In uh, Titus two, verse three, it says the older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So women can be gifted as preachers and teachers. That's a spiritual gift. So my wife, I wouldn't have a problem with people saying she's a preacher. Yeah, she does. She preaches to women. She does not preach to men. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't she preach to men? Because 
the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach. It doesn't say, I do not equip a woman to teach. Mm -hmm. She can have the capacity, Mm -hmm. the ability to teach and preach God's word, but she is not allowed to teach men. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Notice teaching and exercising authority are considered related. She, she is to remain quiet, not quiet in all areas of life. If she's in a women's Bible study, she's teaching her kids. She's speaking at a women's conference. She doesn't sit up there and not say anything. She can teach and preach to women and to children. And this is why Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, this is really important because when a lot of people read this, they're like, well, that's just cultural. Well, there are some things in the New Testament that are disputable issues. Like, is this cultural? Is it not? What's the application for today? But this is not cultural. It's actually, he grounds his argument in creation order, creation order before people ever fell into sin. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason why God wants men to step up and be the primary teachers, preachers over mixed groups, over the whole congregation, uh, or over men and women. So to to say it again from another angle, a woman can teach and preach. And she can preach and teach young to younger women. Obviously, if she's an older woman, she can also preach to older women. She can preach to children. So she can preach to male children, female children, women. So if you have men, women, boys, and girls, three out of the four of those, she can preach and teach to. The only group that she's restricted from preaching and teaching to are men. Mm-hmm. So... Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the qualifications of being an elder or a pastor is the ability to teach. That's also why a woman cannot be a pastor, mm-hmm. elder, under shepherd, overseer, bishop, whatever word you want to use, of a church. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a restriction. Women can serve in women can be spiritually gifted in any area that a man can be gifted in. But there's a boundary, a further boundary placed on her as to where she can exercise that gift. So think of preaching and teaching as the gift. Mm-hmm. Think of pastoring and, or eldering as the office. Within that office, you have to be able to teach and preach the whole congregation, men and women. So therefore, a woman can exercise teaching and preaching in many, many areas of the church but not over men, and therefore she cannot serve as a pastor, an elder, a bishop, an overseer. This is not a bad thing. This is a means of guarding authority in the church because, again, if men are standing up in front of congregations and preaching, thus saith the Lord, to men, it's considered an authoritative act. So there's some limitations put on women in that regard. And that is what I would call a complementarian view within the church and home. Likewise, a man is responsible to be the spiritual leader of his home. Again, the exception to that would be if he's not even saved, he's not a Christian and his wife is, Mm -hmm. but that's an exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. Um, And so hopefully that brings clarity to that question. Yeah. And I think even the way you speak about the uh, very precise language is helpful. I know years ago you made a distinction here at our church talking about we don't talk about uh, it being we don't permit women in ministry because we do permit women in ministry, obviously, that women can serve in all these areas. But then we say 
the scriptures are very specific about which area of ministry, right? Yeah, that's another example. Oh, do you believe in women, women in ministry? Yeah. <laughs> do you mean by that women in pastoral ministry? Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay, well then, no. But just saying women in ministry, of course you want women to be in ministry, mm-hmm. serving Christ in a variety of roles in the life of the church. And in fact, the the um, you know if you look at churches with multiple ministries, the areas that God has excluded them from serving in are very significant, but very small compared to all the areas they can serve in. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, right? When I was a kid, I, I remembered uh, a time when uh, we had a cookie jar on the counter and my mom... It almost sounds uh, cliche, but mom said, don't take the cookies out of the cookie Actually. jar. <laughs> yeah. And I remember thinking, that's all I could think about then. I could, the, the prohibition, it's yeah. the, the one prohibition. She didn't say, I couldn't eat this, eat this, eat this, eat this, or drink this, drink this, drink this, or play outside or go to my buddy's house. Like I had freedom to do all sorts of things. But in that moment, it's just, just leave the cookies alone, please. Mm-hmm. Chocolate chip cookies, just leave them alone. Well, the sin, the sinfulness of man is such that as soon as you're told you can't do something, all of a sudden then you want to do it, mm-hmm. even if it's not good for you or even if you're not gifted at it. It's the same with the Garden of Eden. How many fruit trees and varieties must have been there? Yeah. This just one tree, stay away from it. All of a sudden, that's all you could think about. Mm-hmm. So the reason why this is often a big deal is because we fail to emphasize to women all the things they can do and all the things they are gifted for. And we just focus on this one thing that they can't. Mm -hmm. So we need to do a better job of presenting women with all the many, 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 many areas they can serve in, are gifted in. But there's just one that God has said, you need to stay away from this area. Mm -hmm. Now, some people are going to listen to this, uh, hopefully not many of our listeners, but some people may listen and say things like, you know, Aaron, that sounds really sexist. It sounds just like a cultural thing or very anti-woman, what would your response to them look like? Well, they would be better to direct their uh, antagonism towards the trans movement because the trans movement is the most anti-woman movement probably ever created. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have these stories, right, in these accounts, primarily in the U.S., where this big strapping man, young man, is swimming with girls that are you know, 60% of his weight, maybe 50% of his muscle strength and he's a foot taller or whatnot. And there's no chance, there's no chance of 99.9, maybe 100% of young teenage female swimmers beating young men who are also trained at this sport. It's physiologically disadvantageous and it just cannot be overcome with more training. You know, it's like pitting a um, black Angus bull against a bulldog. I mean, the bulldog might do a little bit of damage, but he's a a fraction of the size. It's just not fair. So this trans movement, which is primarily men pretending to be women, is very anti-women. And I know some of the feminist groups rightly are ticked off that it's like, uh uh-oh, we're trying to stand for women's rights, but we've almost shot ourselves in the foot because now it's, Mm -hmm. let's get rid of all the gender. Here's a genius idea. Let's get rid of all the gender roles. Let's say everybody's even, Stephen, equal in all regards. Well, what's the logical consequence of that? The guy steps up and says, okay, I'm going to pretend I'm a woman and I'm going to swim in women's sports. 
Mm-hmm. Like there weren't, if we allowed this to continue, there would not be one woman in any Olympic sport that would be able to beat a man, maybe with the exception of ballet or something, where it really is more skill-based than about your physical size. So to point your finger at someone like myself who's teaching and upholding a view that's been around since the beginning of the world is really not fair mm-hmm. or um, you know that, that intelligent. In um, Galatians 3.28, as I mentioned earlier, we need to understand that equality in Christ does not mean we're the same. So once again, we'll have churches. Well, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female. You know, we're all the same in Christ. What do you mean by that? If you mean we all equally have access to the gospel, to salvation, to uh, understanding ourselves to be made in the image of likeness of God, you're correct. But it doesn't mean that these things don't exist. Mm-hmm. The reason why there's slave texts in the scriptures that Paul speaking to Philemon, this is how you know you're supposed to interact with Onesimus, is because God is speaking into a culture that's broken and he's accommodating the realities of the culture. Now, by the way, not all slavery was bad. We think the word slavery is a pretty putrid word, but some of these were more like indentured servants, people paying off debt. But I'm talking about the pure slaves who were snatched from the street from their country and dragged off and they're working for someone else without pay. That, that was a problem. And God is not saying, hey, two thumbs up, that's a wonderful thing but he's putting rules in place to accommodate human sinfulness. And so we're, there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female in Christ, but there are still Jews and Greeks. There are still slaves and free. There are still males and females. And there's boundaries attached to maleness and female. We also need to remind people that Jesus isn't anti-women. Neither are we. Jesus interacted with the Canaanite woman, with the Samaritan woman, with Mary Magdalene, with Phoebe, the Canaanite woman, the Samaritan woman, Mary Magdalene, they weren't, they weren't exactly being embraced by their culture because of their ethnicity or their, their sinful present or past. Many of them were involved in sexual sin, for example. Jesus went and actually had extended conversations with them. And, you know, Mary ended up being one of his disciples. So, Jesus is ministering to men and he's ministering to women. A pastor, obviously you have to be careful with your boundaries, private time with women that aren't, you know, your, it's not your spouse, it's not a good idea being alone with a woman that's not your spouse. But we still have to minister to men and women. We're preaching, we're not just preaching mm-hmm. to, at a men's conference all the time, we're preaching to the issues that men and women together experience. That's part of our responsibility. Therefore, we're not anti-woman at all. This isn't sexist. It's just acknowledging the differences um, that exist between us. And and any reasonable person, unless you're just out there look, looking to pick a fight, and, and there are people out there just looking to pick a fight. This is why like on, on social media, sometimes people, why'd you block me? Well, because you were acting like a fool. It says on my social media, I block statists and trolls. So if you're an apostate, you're a drug addict, you are a... Um, idol worshiper, you're um, just an unreasonable person, you might get a comment or question out if it's reasonable and I'll respond to it. But if all you're doing is trying to attack me, 
I don't owe you a place to use my wall to spew your filth. Hmm. I have no obligation to do that. You can spit and holler and threaten and do whatever you want. You're not going to have a place on my wall. I'm going to allow people on there to disagree with me, but if they're going to be disrespectful, if they're going to peddle lies and occultism and apostasy, you're going to get the big old block button Mm -hmm. put into place. And I won't feel bad about that in any way, shape or form. So, There are people out there that are like that. No matter what I say, no matter what you say, Chris, what you preach, they're going to throw their labels on you. You know, you are this, you're that, you're this, you're that. It's like, seriously, buzz off. Mm -hmm. Like, answer not a fool according to his folly. That's a scriptural principle. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, when you think about uh, people talking, (laughs) you you block somebody and then they say, well, that's not, you're such a supporter of free speech. That's not free speech. And you're like, well, no, you still are free to speak. You're just not free to use my influence (laughs) for your speaking. (laughs) So go get your own influence. You know, allowing someone to clutter up my social media with lies and stupidity, that would be like me inviting these people to come speak on the stage beside me at church after I've preached my sermon. Mm -hmm. Why would I deliberately expose my primary audience to foolishness and lies and immaturity? And you can pick it up pretty quick. There's people that legitimately ask you questions. Like we, we could, as a result of this podcast, get a question from someone. And they're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not a believer, but could you qualify this? Or what do you think about this argument? We would gladly respond to that. Yep. But when they jump on and they're accusatory and they, you know, play all these stunts and you can tell they're, they're not willing to listen, you're literally casting your pearls before swine and just completely wasting your time then we um, have an obligation actually to protect our, uh, our broader audience from lies. And, and so we, we push them off. Same in the life of the church. If you're living in unrepentant sin and you're going to continue to lie, steal, adulterate, whatever it might be, we go through the church discipline process. But at some point in time, yeah, you're not welcome in our church. Don't come. That's a biblical thing. Have nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we get to some question or a question that our listener came in, real practical close out to this discussion of the roles. What are the practical things that people can do to honor biblical teaching about and put these principles into practice? We'll never violate the clear biblical teachings of scripture, but recognize that when there's maybe a little bit of room for differences of opinion or there's some gray areas, um, you know, maximize opportunities. So when we talk about women preaching and teaching, in the church, some churches go you know, to the next level and say, well, they can't be worship leaders then, or they can't be greeters, or you know, they can never pray at a prayer concert. Well, if, if those are your convictions, okay, those are your convictions. But I err on the side of keeping the restrictions to the most black and white, clear-cut things of Scripture that I'm absolutely convinced about, and I allow for flexibility around the edges. Um. So I'm, I'm not strict in areas I'm not r- absolutely sure about. I'm strict in areas I'm absolutely or convictionally uh, concerned about. And I, I tend to allow for more flexibility in, in other areas. So I don't personally have a problem with a woman leading worship, like leading the song or whatever on Sunday or uh, praying, but we, we even ask some of our female worship leaders, like when you're up there, don't, don't re-preach my sermon. 
Don't give little mini sermons as you're leading up to a song. You know, just pray or read scripture or make a comment. And then, you know, if you're the lead, we always have a mixed band, but um, so that would be one point. The other thing would do, be that it's wise to emphasize what you can do, not just what you cannot do. So if someone's like, well, what, what are the restrictions on women in your church? Well, before I maybe would feel comfortable diving right into that, I'd say, well, here's all the things they could do. Mm -hmm. And you, it's a very long list. And then here's the restrictions. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to just emphasize the don'ts. We want to also emphasize the do's. Uh, women should should um, teach women this first. So one of the things I've asked my wife to do, and she asked some of the mature women of the church to do, is they should be talking about this at women's Bible studies, at women's conferences. So it's not always the men of the church emphasizing this. Hey, ladies, listen to me. This is what you can and cannot do. We do need to preach that way because if we're preaching the Bible, those texts are going to come up. But the women, when they teach the mature Christian women, when they teach and put this into practice in front of the younger women, the new believers, it's much easier for them to often accept it because there's always that, that carnal resistance, that immaturity that's there. So that's really important to don't, don't just use the men of the church to teach women how to live this way. Let the older women teach the younger women as Paul instructed Timothy to do. Then we have the problem of men often not leading. We've had many situations in our church where a godly Christian woman's like, I want this. I believe in this, but my husband won't lead. He just won't lead. And he's a Christian and he won't lead. So we have to hold men accountable to this mm -hmm. and say, man, you're creating a problem in your relationship. You're not leading. You're not praying. You're not speaking biblical truth. You're not initiating church attendance. You're not initiating generosity. Like, Get your act together, brother. So men's discipleship groups and mentoring relationships are really important for that. I would say that one of the most successful things I've ever done in ministry without even thinking about it, without even realizing how important it was, is my annual men's discipleship group where I take eight to 12 young men. They meet with me every other week for basically... Um, Almost a year, right? Yeah, that around nine months, okay. right? It takes nine months for them to be birthed and <laughs> sent out on their own. But... Um, Teaching them about this stuff, helping them to understand like how to initiate a relationship, how to conduct themselves properly mm -hmm. with money and sexuality and all that. Instead of waiting until they're 35 or 40 and then trying to correct 25 or 35 years of bad behavior. Yep. So being proactive in that. Confronting men uh, for failing to lead and then running your church in such a way that this we see this as a glorious thing. Let's stop apologizing for what God has said. Mm -hmm. Stop apologizing for it. Creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. So take away the stigma. It's like, oh man, someone just asked me a question about male-female relationships. Oh, cringe, cringe, cringe. How's this going to go over? Present it as a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. It is a beautiful thing. I don't want to be a woman. Women shouldn't want to be men. Women shouldn't want to pastor and elder in churches. Qualified men should aspire to that. These are not bad things. Just like if you're a male and you have children, you should want to be a father, mm -hmm. not want to be the mother. If you're a female, you should want to be the mother, not the father. We run around, the world has a weird way of taking that which is good, labeling it as bad, and then pushing us into the corner and asking us to apologize for it. We're not going to apologize for this. We're going to preach in such a way that we are aware of the cultural realities around us, the misconceptions, the lies, the corruption that people have. 
but we want to present this in a beautiful way. And finally, Chris, we want to role model it in a way that's attractive that people are like, man, that couple, they seem to be flourishing. I want that. And then they start to watch and they noticed male initiative and female humble submissiveness and differences, difference of roles in the homes and the, the father actually acting like a man and the woman, the mother actually, actually acting like a woman and the way they raise their children, all the differences there. These are a beautiful thing. I want, as the world falls apart and gets more chaotic, I want the people to look at the church and say, actually what they have looks pretty attractive. Mm -hmm. This is good. I, I want that kind of marriage. I want my kids to turn out that way. So framing it up in a positive way and celebrating it, not in a self, um, not, not, not for the purpose of drawing attention to ourselves, but to, to, put on display that God's patterns, God's principles, God's teachings actually work and actually bless people. Mm -hmm. Amen. I'm so thankful for the people that have done that in my life and have shown that example. Okay. So we got a question in from a listener and this listener says here that they are a member of the conservative party of Canada and a Bible believing Christian. And there is currently a leadership race going on in the Conservative Party for a new leader here in Canada. And so they're asking what your thoughts are on a, a certain political uh, candidate, Pierre uh, Poliev, I think that's how you say it. Uh, he's apparently very good on finances. I've seen him on social media and stuff, and they've mentioned this in the letter as well. Uh, but he is pro-abortion and pro-LGBTQ+. So the person's asking, hey, should I vote for him or should I not even include him in my ranked ballot? Basically, he's better than what we've got, but... He's not what we want, ultimately. So what should we do with it? Well, with respect, think about the question, what you're actually asking. You're asking me, should we affirm a man who's okay with babies being slaughtered in the womb? Should we affirm a man who is okay with men pretending to be women and women pretending to be men and who's okay with sodom sodomite lifestyles? And should we be okay with affirming a man as the next prime minister of our country who went along with Bill C-4, which essentially made a biblical view of sexuality illegal in a counseling session to communicate mm -hmm. to a gay person. I will not vote for any member of parliament in the entire country of Canada that didn't speak out against Bill C-4. That means I will not vote for any incumbent in any party, period, unless they repent. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no way that I can in good conscience vote for a person that participated in the passing of a bill that makes my Bible illegal to communicate to a select group of people and therefore usurps the authority of God. I understand incrementalism. I understand that if you're presented with three bad choices, you rank them more often than not, and you pick the lesser of all evils. There is many of these politicians that I find to be very interesting. They speak well, they're articulate. I think one-on-one -on -one in a conversation, I'd probably get along with them quite well and enjoy their company and have a good verbal sparring match with them. But I refuse, we've reached a tipping point. I refuse to vote for anyone that disrespects my God in those heinous, heinous, heinous ways. It's time to literally hit the reset button and find people to run for office on every level that at least on some level affirm or at least don't make illegal 
creational biblical values. I'm not no longer, and I never really have been, but I'm not going to continue to get on the merry-go-round, which is like, yeah, but what if they get in or what if they get in? Oh, well, then our country needs to be judged. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. A lot of people are, are not okay with this. I'm okay with our country getting 10 times worse if that's what it takes for there to be national repentance and reform. I'm okay with full-on communism, full-on Marxism, full-on tyranny, the absolute destruction of our economy, jail time for faithful Christians. If that's what it takes for our country to bow the knee and acknowledge the supremacy of God once again, I'm prepared to endure that. What I'm not going to do is try to give myself a little bit of a reprieve from the current regime or the current tyrants ruling our country to get someone in who's an eight on the level of tyranny or godlessness, and they might be a 10. Mm -hmm. No. Again, I don't expect for all the politicians to be elected to be your God-fearing, blood-bought, born-again believers who love Jesus Christ and are going to make every decision based upon his law. That would be super cool. That's not going to happen. If if ever, uh, or at least for certainly not for a long, long time, right? Unless there's national repentance. I, I would consider voting for someone who repented who's a current incumbent, who's already in office, who, who repented and said, I repent that I didn't raise my hand quick enough mm-hmm. when Bill C-4 was affirmed. I, 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 would, I would consider that, but that's not what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And so instead of Christians trying to continue to um, basically ride a dead donkey, um, we need to, 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 to get away from the corrupt leaders that are taking us nowhere fast. And we need to get new horses, new donkeys on the field to work for us, mm-hmm. to lead us even. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this. I, I do believe that many Christians uh, would agree with me on that. I think there are some who continue to sort of look at the, the list and again, Here's the thing, right? They sort of rank them. They say, well, okay, this guy that's in power is a 10 out of 10 tyrant or evildoer. So I'm going to go, if I could find a guy that's like even a six or seven or a woman that's a six or seven, I'll vote for him or her because it's better than what we have. The problem is we keep shifting, shifting, shifting further and further away from God. So the people now, they would maybe rank as a six. 15 years ago, we would have given them a 10 out of 10 in terms of evilness but they're just not as evil as the next guy. Yeah. But all, all of these people are ultimately destructive. Yeah, one might be a little more intelligent with uh, fiscal responsibility, but are we, are we so uh, disconcerned with the holiness of God that the, the number one thing we're looking for is a guy that's going to rescue us economically so we can get back to passive, mediocre, mushy middle Christianity? Mm-hmm. No. This is our time. This is our opportunity. This is our opportunity to say, even if it takes five, six, 10 more election cycles, godly people, righteous people, we will not vote for you. You do not deserve our vote mm-hmm. just because everyone else is worse. You will do the following or we will not vote for you. I'll tell you, Chris, before God, if I, if I was presented on a ballot with three or four or five options to vote for, 
And out of those options, there's no one that has spoken out against statism, lockdownism, abortionism. I would spoil my ballot. Mm-hmm. Write the name Jesus Christ on their reins or something like that before I will vote for these people. I refuse to play to get to get on the political merry-go-round. Because by the way, and I've said this over and over and over again, politics now is theological. It always has been, but it's just so more so much more often. This idea of separating the gospel from politics is absurd. The decisions that the politicians are making are down the list, anti-Christ, 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 anti-God's law, anti-Christ, anti-God's law. We have a responsibility as Christians to speak into social evil. The prophets did this. They called the kings out when they were unjust, when they were abusing widows and orphans, when they were stealing and usurping their authority and dishonoring God and worshiping Baal and all the pagan gods. Nowadays, we have this super weird notion that the gospel is just about getting to heaven and it's not about the lordship of Christ over creation. So again, if there's a if there's a politician that's going to publicly act in such a way that demonstrates he hates the true and living God, mm-hmm. he's deliberately passing bills to ban Christians from speaking the truth. He's participating in lies in order to get those bills that with their lying false premises passed to bring further destruction upon the nations. I will not vote for these people. So even among the th- big three parties, they are so corrupt. They are so corrupt. There's corruption on, in, on, a, on a number of other levels. There's parties that won't take a stand on things they should take a stand on, but they also allow for their members to speak to these issues, which is incrementally better. But w- we have to, we, we have to uh, essentially threaten these people, threaten them and say, if you are going to act in a godless way, you will not get our vote just because you're a little bit better. And don't give me this lie. Oh, but if you don't vote for us, look who's going to get in. I heard this in the last federal election Mm -hmm. from more quote unquote right wing, which is just 1980s radical or 1990s radical left wingism. Well, if you don't vote for me, you're going to, it's going to be your fault when this other nut job gets in. And then Christian's like, okay, okay, I'll vote for this guy. Because he's a, he's a little bit better than the other person running. And then all of these people still remain silent in the face of Bill C-4. It's yeah. inexcusable. I would yeah. go so far as to say it's mild. It's blasphemous for Christians to continue to put people into office, to participate in these electoral processes, to put people in office that have publicly blasphemed your God and tried to make his law and his word illegal in the country of Canada. So I feel pretty strongly about this. Enough's enough. No more playing games. No more tolerating foolishness. Um, We need more godly, conscientious Christian people to stand up and run for office. And even if they don't win, it's still the right thing to do to say, I want to represent the, the, the rules, the principles of God into culture because without it, there is no hope for this country and more people than not are even being robbed of the opportunities they otherwise would have to hear the conversion uh, message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, Aaron. Make sure to catch us on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network on their app. You can download it at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network website 
or the uh, Google Play Store, Apple Store. You can also check us out on the CJXC Radio, Canada's constant Christian companion. We're on there a couple of times a week. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. Mm-hmm.